Hi, I'm Kate Dearden, and you're listening to The Migration Podcast. We're pleased to be starting off 2024 by releasing two episodes this month. If you didn't already listen, a few weeks ago we heard Alejandra Diaz de Leon talk about her research on the experiences of Central Americans migrating on foot through Mexico and building communities along the way. In this episode, we shift focus to Africa. We hear Celindile Milelu interview Lauren Landau about his latest research on African cities. He talks about how patterns of migration to cities in Africa is distinct from urbanization in other parts of the world. He has been looking at the regulation of space, how migrants relate to cities, and other issues around ethics of inclusion and visibility. Lauren also talks about how he sees the current state of migration studies and the importance of keeping space for research that shifts perspectives away from donor priorities. Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and for being part of this podcast. So to get us right into the interview, I'm really interested to find out from you as an academic with unique and extensive experience working uh, on migration issues in both the global south and the global north. What would you say is the current state of migration studies globally and where can we locate debates and lessons we can apply from the south? It's a great question and a, a, a very big question. I think there's a, there is, of course, the, the foundational question of what is migration studies. And I think there, what we've seen over the last let's say, 15, 20 years, is a real growth in people who identify themselves as migration scholars. Before, there were the demographers, there were people doing humanitarian work, there were maybe a, a few people who really framed their work as, as migration, but of course, migration was present in, in human geography, in discussions of environment, environmental protection, in urban planning, etc., what we've really seen over the last 20 years is that growth of migration studies as a field and a, a growth of a kind of migration studies political economy with new institutes forming, with a lot more research that's being done on migration studies, particularly in, in the global south, and, and the blossoming of, of master's programs, of people doing doctoral studies in migration studies, number of journals, etc., and I think there's a real question about, A, is that a good thing? Clearly, more migration researchers is a good thing, but is the way in which that growth has, has happened a good thing? And then secondly, you know, where Africa or work in Africa fits into that broader ecosystem. And I think those are both things that we could we could speak about. So what do you think people within the global north could be learning from some of the research from the African context? Well, I think that there's a whole range of discussions that, and and at different levels in which scholars based in Europe, in in the United States, Australia, could learn. One is a, a broadly reflective question: is that they could learn a bit of humility when they realize that many of the concepts, the ideas, the kind of work that they do, has limited relevance outside of the context. Where they, the, with which they are the most familiar. So take, for example, questions of migrant integration. That's language has been problematic even in Europe and elsewhere, but it works from the premise of citizenship, of belonging as this more or less stable, unified category that has been naturalized over an extended period. And then immigrants or outsiders coming in to what is a relatively stable environment. 
I think when we start to look at post-colonial states, especially states with relatively recent independence or post-colonial periods, that unity, that stability, even the desirability of becoming part of something is not necessarily there. And the work I've done on cities, the work that with that uh, you and I have done on, on questions of difference and diversity in, in South Africa, give cause to question the very fundamental principles, both empirical and ethical, about that. I think we can also ask broader questions about the implications of, of policy. There's a very strong emphasis on policy frameworks, on law, on, on what even what municipalities are doing at a, a sort of formal level. And when you start to look outside of a country like the U.S. or Germany, you start to realize that, A, the state itself often doesn't follow its own policies, and B, even when it does, the state may be present in such a, a kind of weak way or intentionally absent that those policies are important in a certain way, a symbolic way, maybe in, a, in signaling certain things, but the actual practices are often happening outside of the state. And there may be actors or logics or people who are involved that don't work from that same logic. So, for example, refugees might have legal status. They might be recognized by the state. They may carry a document. But over and over again, we've seen that their experience, their practical experience, accessing housing, protection from the police, protection from their neighbors, getting jobs, doesn't differ very much from those who don't have documents, right? And that very idea that an undocumented person and someone with refugee status basically have the same experience fundamentally challenges a lot of advocacy, a lot of theorization, etc. And I think that, together with the, the just enormously diverse forms of mobility we see on the continent, give cause to question some of the, the very fundamental uh, premises of migration studies from an empirical, conceptual, ethical foundation. And then that should, in turn, give cause to question just when people in the global north talk about global migration theory, or even migration theory as if it is global, who are they to make those kind of claims? And maybe they should also be doing, as, as we're asked to do every day, more reflection on where they sit in this kind of broader ecosystem of knowledge production. How best do you think we can be telling migration stories? And essentially, what does it mean to do a critical uh, migration scholarship, especially on the African continent, given some of the, the issues that you've highlighted? Yeah, I think that what underlies your question, at least as I understand it, uh, is that we have a, a question of audience and who are we telling these stories for? And a lot of migration scholarship or scholarship on African migration that's done on the continent is not told in any way except to further a certain type of policy agenda. And the question is, whose policy agenda are we furthering? And usually it's the ones who are funding or framing the work that we do. And that's not necessarily a, always a bad thing, but a lot of time that work is funded or framed by governments, if we're lucky, by civil society organizations, sometimes by international civil society or NGOs, and often by international organizations that might be funded by the United States, USAID, or the European Union, or someone else. 
that work is certainly legitimate and there's no reason not to do it, but it raises a question of who is it that we're trying to reach with that work. They've asked for that work to be produced for a reason, for their own purposes, which may be philanthropic, they may be altruistic, or they may be you know, informed by a desire to stop people from moving or a desire to impose some kind of policy that may not be in the interest of the people we're talking about. So I think we have to ask, who is it that we're doing that work for? And at least what I intend to do is to think about how do we reach a different audience and how do we tell stories, not made up stories, but how do we animate the research that we're doing in a way that can unsettle how governments, NGOs, or others think about their own work? How do we denaturalize some of the ideas about, say, integration or about the the way in which migration is managed or the fact that Africans all trying to get to Europe is not the truth? You know, how do we unsettle some of those things? How do we think about difference, xenophobia, accommodation? How do we think about development and the role of migration in that? We need to tell those stories in, in different ways, but that requires a few things that are in short supply. It requires money, resources, people who are not immediately dependent on, on aid. And, and across the, the continent, there's very few research centers and researchers who are like that. It requires also a set of skills in, in telling stories and in, in displaying, in disseminating empirical information that we as social scientists are often not trained to do. So this podcast, for example, is a way of reaching an audience that wouldn't necessarily read a research report or a journal article. But we need to, to think about how we engage in other forms of storytelling. In podcasts, one, but TikTok or social media is another. Maybe the other forms of the legacy media or arts, humanities, and have those kind of conversations. And some of the work that I'm doing now is experimenting with those modalities. I just wanted to pick up on, on what you said regarding how oftentimes, you know, the work that is done around migration is following a certain agenda, whether it's a donor agenda, et cetera. So for upcoming migration scholars, I mean, where can we find the balance between ensuring that we are critically engaging in research and scholarship that speaks to reality, but also really asking questions that can make us think through how we can address some of these issues that we're looking into while also working within a space of getting funding from certain institutions that have their own agendas? It's, it's a very big question, and it's a question I think even more senior scholars are asking if they don't want to do the work that is simply commissioned work. They want to have a, their independent, own critical intellectual agenda, and it is a question without easy answers. The bigger question is, is, can we change the funding frameworks? Can we change the priorities of, you know, of universities that demand that work be demand-led by policymakers or demand that all of your research is funded by you know, outside sources and so you will follow the agenda of those outside sources? Can we think about national research foundations or comparable organizations or philanthropy offering more independence or listening more to scholars about the work that should be done, not just what's needed in, a, in the short term. Those are big wishes, 
and perhaps they're unrealistic in the short term. So what does that mean for us training the next generation and for people entering the field? And I think what it requires is forms of dissimulation or a recognition that we all have to work in multiple registers. So just as when we, we you know, when you, you're with an elder or a grandmother, there's a certain politeness and a certain way in which you speak and a way in which you tell stories. And when you're with your friends or at a bar, there's a very different way, one that is more direct, perhaps potentially rude or challenging, because you're in a space where you can do that. And we need to think about a scholarly practice that can do that when we need to, to raise money, to have policy influence, to, to build a career or profile, that we learn that language of the policymakers, of the grant writing, right? And then we also ensure that we're creating spaces and work to create space, whether at an institutional individual level, through partnerships, through collaborations, or just even on our own, to be able to speak frankly, rudely, to criticize, to undermine, and to try to protect other people who want to do that kind of unsettling generative activity. It's not going to be everyone who can do that. It's not going to be everyone who wants to do that. There's plenty of people who are happy to go in and work for UNHCR, work for the World Bank, and they have every right to do that. But I think what we as scholars and new people entering the field need to try to create those spaces, as hard as it is, where people, when they want to, can retreat and can have a space to talk critically and to try to generate a new ways of thinking. I think now I'm interested in getting into the current research that you are working on. I know that you're looking into cities in the global south. Can you tell us a bit about this? Why do you think it's important to look into African cities? And what lessons are you deriving from this research that can be located in global discourse? African cities are the future of African politics and society. If we look at the demography, we look at the population trends, Africa is already primarily urban, and it will be even more urban in the, in the years ahead. However, much of the research that's been done on Africa, because it has been framed as research about development, has been based in rural settings, on peasants, on farming, on agricultural production, potentially on mining or resource extraction. And not a huge amount and not enough has been done on cities. Some of this is because of, of the way funding has worked. Some of it is a political agenda because African countries have often been quite anti-urbanization. But none of those things have stopped people from coming to cities. And we now have to think about what this means, what it means politically, economically, socially. What does it mean for how people get along? And what does it mean conceptually to have millions and millions of people coming to cities that were not built for them? Many of African cities were built as sites of extraction, sites of settlement, sites of domination or, or bureaucracy. If we take the capital of, of Botswana, you know, it was a city that was designed for 20 or 30,000 people. It now has 10 times that. If we look at cities across the continent, they haven't had the infrastructure development. They haven't had the industries. They haven't had the jobs to support or the services to support the populations that they have. None of those things have stopped people from coming. And so there's a question of 
what will these things be? And the research that we've been doing in, in East and West and, and Southern Africa is really exploratory in that sense. It's really asking, so when people come to cities, what does that mean for them? What does it mean for the places they've come from? What does it mean for the people who are already there, the institutions that are there, and the ways in which they are going to collectively craft their futures? What are our findings? Well, some of them are, are still speculative at this point, but what's clear is that the, the patterns of urbanization in Africa are not the patterns that we've seen elsewhere. It's not about people coming to the city and getting jobs or being incorporated into labor markets. This isn't industrial, the industrial urbanization that we've seen in Asia or historically in the United States or Europe. This is in urbanization of a, of a different kind. What we've also seen is that urbanization is, in, in Potts's word, kind of partial. People are coming in but retaining very strong connections elsewhere. Perhaps the, the greatest finding is that as people live in the city, as they make futures in the city, they often have their minds somewhere else, that they want to go somewhere else in the city, they want to go to another city or town entirely, they want to leave the country, or maybe they just want to go back home. And this kind of transience, this kind of churning, develops very different kinds of social life. It's not about building stable communities, and we don't have those institutions. People are not joining the kind of clubs and societies that build communities, they are instead living lives that allow them to kind of pass through, pass by each other. Levels of trust are low. Levels of social engagement are low. But people are making lives. We need to understand these processes so much better. The work we're doing is, is a step in that process, but we need others involved. We need to, to think about what this means and the desirability and the suitability of some of the urban development and the development models that we have, but also to think ethically. When we talk about kind of political participation, representation, visibility, inclusion, in these sorts of environments, all those things take on different meanings. And we need to debate and deliberate and, and come to a, almost a philosophical, epistemological, and ontological change in how we think about cities. What, what's going on? What are the ethics behind it? What does a, a positive or progressive intervention look like? So I'm just interested to find out how is space regulated in, in such cities, especially the ones that you're looking at, and what do you think that what, what is the impact that it has on individuals who are considered on the periphery of boundaries? The regulation of urban spaces is complicated. And I think what we're seeing is that there's no such thing as a unified city. There's no such thing as a city with a clear boundary. Well, the administrative boundary might be there, but the economic processes transcend boundaries, but they're also highly fragmented. The social processes clearly transcend boundaries, but people live within cities in very different, increasingly fragmented social worlds. Some people behind walls, some people in slums, some in kind of ordinary middle-class spaces. We also see that the regulatory environments vary. So the growth of the walled city, the kind of elite or even uh, middle-class enclaves where people have separated themselves, they basically become self-governing. We see parts of cities that are effectively governed by churches or built by churches. We see townships that are effectively controlled by gangsters. Other places, the states are involved or the state is present, but in ways that are not necessarily bound by policy or law. 
but we also see the regulation of space through social means, through norms around gender, around sexuality, around notions of success. And those link people to practices and, and, and families and, and social worlds way outside the city, in the diaspora, in the villages that they're from. All of those things shape how people work, what they feel they can do, the kind of things that are stigmatized or allowed. So what we're seeing is, is really a, a search, at least in my side, a search for a metaphor about how do we talk about regulation? Is it a honeycomb? Is it, is it stratified? Is it fragmented? It's many different things. And it means that we also need to think about the means of regulation. It's not just the state. It's not just through violence. It's through all of these things. It's economic. It's political. It's coercive. But importantly, it's also deeply social. Lauren Landau is Professor of Migration and Development at the University of Oxford and at the African Center for Migration and Society at the University of Witwatersrand. His interdisciplinary research includes the topics of representation, multi-scale governance, and the transformation of socio-political communities across the Global South. He is currently overseeing a multi-year initiative exploring mobility, temporality, and urban politics in Ghana, Kenya, and South Africa. If you enjoy the Migration Podcast, please consider liking and following us. Thanks for listening.